Discussing world-changing ideas through real conversations. Exploring the potential of technology to solve the most critical challenges facing business, people and the planet. Coming up... Everybody can improve their performance. Everybody can do better work. And it doesn't cost anything. You know, it, it really doesn't cost anything to examine your own blind spots, to examine your own inputs to your own decisions and so forth. And at minimum, if you're a skeptic, um, diversity and inclusion can de-risk the decisions that you are accountable for, which is good news. This is the Real Conversations podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. Stephen Frost is known worldwide as a leadership expert in diversity and inclusion. His career in advertising included working on disability and age awareness campaigns. He launched the UK's first LGBT recruitment guide, and he's taught inclusive leadership at Harvard Business School and is the author of The Key to Inclusion. Diversity and inclusion seem like a natural fuel for a company's success, but when I sat down with Stephen to discuss the topic, my first question was, can he prove it? Well, there's several ways we can try and figure that one out. Uh, one, I guess, is look at the counterfactual. If there's a lack of diversity or lack of inclusion. Um, first in diversity, uh, the most obvious there is when there's a lack of diversity of thought or so-called groupthink. And we've got lots of examples in corporate history of organizations getting into trouble when they've had lots of smart people who haven't had sufficient calibration to their decision making. But perhaps more interestingly in terms of inclusion is where you might have lots of diversity, right? You might think you've got this wonderfully diverse team. But if you don't include them, don't listen to them, uh, they don't feel psychologically safe and so forth, uh, then then that's when you get into trouble too. So the counterfactual, I guess, is a somewhat negative starting place, but a place we can start nonetheless. Positive one is to look perhaps at the value add or the creation that can come from more diversity, more inclusion. And you really need both. Because if you just have more diversity, you could end up with just a lot more chaos, right? If people aren't communicating or or what have you, uh, you haven't got a common set of, you know, values or communication tools or norms and protocols, it can be chaotic. Um, but if you have, you've got inclusive leadership, you can have great things happen. And we can look at, for example, the contributions of people in the NASA space program who were previously excluded. Uh, we can look at examples in, you know, developments in recent tech, chat GPT, uh, a female engineer. We can look at lots of examples where diversity properly included, has led to breakthrough results that wouldn't otherwise have happened. Just a, a matter of, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, none of us are brilliant enough. Yeah, indeed. Um, and and that hubris can uh, can be a false god. Now, diversity isn't just about race, though, is it not? It's way more than race. I mean, look, um, clearly race is incredibly important because there's systemic racism in our organizations and society at large. So it's clearly a factor and at least a pattern. Um, but yeah, it's more than that because ultimately this is about, uh, certainly in a, in a commercial or business sense, this is about the goal, right? The goal being to sell more things or to have higher productivity or to serve a customer better. Uh, it's about the goal. And, and therefore in one sense, therefore diversity is an input to that goal and racial equity is a very important input to that goal. But, but so is, for example, accessibility for people who might have disabilities. So is treating people uh, fairly with regards to sexual orientation or whether they're on the diversity, neurodiverse spectrum, right? And so ultimately, it's it's about the entirety of the human condition. 
but we can clearly focus on things like race because they stand out so much as being a, a situation that's unjust. Can we quantify how much more successful an inclusion-oriented company is compared to one that doesn't put the effort into it? We're getting there. So there's a lot of talk about correlations and causations, and it's still pretty hard to prove causation. So if I would say to you, Michael, if your company is X more percent diverse, it will be X more percent profitable. As a causation, just stretching a little bit. We actually do have examples where that could be the case, but it's much safer to rely on correlation where there's ample evidence and the literature is pretty uh, comprehensive on the correlations between that. And we can look at, for example, gender diversity and rates of return in banking. We can look at racial diversity and consumer satisfaction scores. There's, there's lots there where we can talk about the correlation being pretty pretty robust and statistically significant. Um, but of course, look, we need to be humble. Uh, this is only one of many variables and it doesn't excuse, you know, <laughs> it's not the only variable that's uh, determining business success, but it is an often overlooked one. You mentioned the financial services sector. Mm. For someone such as me in Canada, it's often cited uh, that Canada's banking system is uh, more diverse than what we had seen elsewhere around the world. And when we had the big 2008 financial crisis, we didn't suffer to the same degree in this country, in part because diversity led to a willingness to say, no, we are not going to take risks that others are. So there's some truth in that. Uh, if you look at the 2008 crisis and all the, the reports that have been written on it, particularly the 2011 uh, World Economic Forum Risk Report, which, which referenced that, that example, um, we, we can look at um, many factors. Indeed, you're really a question, right? So, so other things at play in Canada's comparative success and comparative well-weathering of the stall in the financial crisis was not just that. It was also like, you know, good regulation, um, reasonably good relationships, uh, less confrontational compared to the US and so forth and so forth. So many, many variables. But indeed, um, I think there is a correlation to be made between the fact that in comparison, particularly with the US or the UK, uh, Canada's banking sector was, quote-unquote, more diverse and was more a little less risk-averse, more risk-averse. And that is a factor. It's been cited in the literature. Um, but yeah, we, we, we should take it again with a, with a pinch of salt. But um, undoubtedly, the diversity was a helpful factor in uh, allowing Canada to weather the storm better than the, the US. Tell me what your industry, how did your experience in the advertising industry lead to a career in diversity and inclusion? Well, besides a, a series of wrong turns, I, I think what it was, Michael, was that um, advertising is a wonderful industry uh, to, to cut your teeth, right? Um, it's the ultimate client service industry. It's very creative and you've got a P&L from an early age. Um, but ultimately, I suppose for me, what was it for? And um, I was just very cognizant that in the time I was in advertising, we still didn't have, for example, equal marriage. We still didn't have equal adoption rights. There's still a lot of basic civil rights that we might take for granted uh, that weren't in existence. So I wanted to use those skills for what I perceived to be social good, uh, which is why I made the shift um, in the early 2000s. And how has that played out for you? What's what's your biggest learning is part of that evolution of yourself? There's, there's a ton of learnings, right? Like like, like we all have uh, by this stage of the game in our, in our careers. But I think for me, um, I, I still see to this day, a lot of organizations um, spend a lot of time and effort trying to kind of discover their purpose. Um, but actually, if you've, if you've got a purpose already and you've got a very strong uh, call to action, then the rest kind of falls into place a little bit. 
And and for me, advertising is a wonderful method uh, rather than an, an end in itself. And and what that means for, for diversity inclusion, I think, is that if we can frame diversity inclusion in a really effective way, uh, including thanks to advertising, we can be more successful. So if people think diversity inclusion is a load of pure political correctness, tree-hugging, kumbaya stuff that has no correlation to business performance, um, you're probably not going to engage the people you need to engage uh, to have more success. And indeed, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, uh, I know plenty of executives that if they are frog-marched into a diverse inclusion session, will be doing it with one arm behind their back and rolling the eyes. So I think that framing is really important. Whereas actually with effective framing, um, as indeed I hope we're having in this conversation, that it's about performance, it's about, you know, uh, productivity, it's about really good things that help us all. The question then becomes not, why diverse inclusion, but why not, right? Why why wouldn't you if if there's genuine value to be had? And if you can still, you know, retain a sense of humor, it can be helpful and so forth, why on earth wouldn't you? And so a lesson for me is that uh, the framing, which people might dismiss as cons or advertising, is actually critically important to how diversity inclusion is understood uh, and, and really internalized by executives and business folks worldwide. And that is really important. And I can imagine you got firsthand experience with this while working on the London Olympic Games and the Paralympics in 2012. That was um, a wonderful privilege and a wonderful opportunity to work with the team uh, for five, six years, really, uh, in the run-up to the, um, the London Games. I was head of diversity and chief of staff, and they were a wonderful combination to be able to access the, the powers that be uh, but hopefully for, for, again, for a really useful purpose, right? Uh, to, to really make London as inclusive as possible. Um, I think that the learning there to, to deal with your question, Michael, was that, again, these wonderful women and men who were super smart and created the day job would perhaps have thought under pressure and under duress and under a bit of a timeline that diversity inclusion was a nice to have, right? And that indeed doing it, which they really wanted to do, came at the cost of not doing something else. And they, they saw it as a trade-off or an opportunity cost. And the biggest learning there was to talk to these brilliant, but very, very hardworking people and to say, look, don't think of this as a work stream. Don't think of it as a separate activity. But actually, how is it a methodology to get done what you've got to get done? So if your job is to sell tickets... How can diversity inclusion help you sell more tickets more quickly, more effectively to different people? If your job is catering, how can diversity inclusion help you with customer service, ensuring everyone gets fed on time on budget? If you're in procurement, how could diversity inclusion even help reduce uh, the supply costs through making things more transparent and more competitive? So I think it was the learning was to really empathize with smart people rather than bash them over the head and listen and actually try and frame diversity inclusion as a methodology that would help them get done what they needed to get done rather than another thing to add to the to-do list. You mentioned you know, the idea of having to frog march leadership into a room to talk about the importance of diversity. <laughs> if diversity isn't just for the frontline employees, how does diverse leadership fuel productivity? One, the frog marching comment is slightly tongue-in-cheek, right? Because whilst it's true... Um, I hope that increasingly with proper framing, they're chomping at the bit. 
Um, but how does it um, tie in? I, I think, look, we can look at organizations that have not been uh, privileged with diverse leadership and see the mistakes they've made, right? And there's a ton of counterfactuals and financial services and corporate America and so forth that, that demonstrate that smart people who were all of a collective mold fell off the cliff together. Um, the, the productivity gain from diversity in leadership can be seen perhaps in innovative stuff. So let's take, yeah, let's take FS, but let's take, for example, tech. And we mentioned the, the founder of ChatGPT. Or we can look at, you know, other up-and-coming areas like in pharmaceuticals where we're seeing an increase in gender diversity at the top of the pharma companies correlated with, for example, a bit of more emphasis now on clinical trial diversity, uh, particularly post-pandemic and so forth, that this isn't just an HR thing, but actually we want to look at the whole you know, end-to-end production system and, and drug development cycle. So again, I don't want to overblow it, right, and say that it's caused that, but there's a definite correlation between increased diversity in some of these sectors and changed practices, which in my view are for the better. You've told me in the past that diversity in itself isn't going to help. What's the one pitfall to building a diverse leadership team that doesn't get enough attention? Hmm. I suppose, again, it's back to how you build a diverse leadership team. So if we can kind of agree that generally uh, a diverse leadership team, all things being equal, is a good thing, right? At least cognitive diversity, if nothing else, but that difference is a good thing to have in leadership. I think the, the pitfall might be in how you get there. And I think under shareholder pressure or employee pressure or political pressure, you see some organizations going about it rather cack-handedly. And, and they tend to kind of, you know, fixate on a target um, and just drive there with not enough due regard for the methodology of how they're trying to achieve it. And let's take, for example, gender, which is perhaps one of the, the biggest ones that's out there. Um, you could have a gender target and therefore you're really prioritizing the promotion, retention, recruitment of women, right? Which sounds great. And indeed, it may well be great. But if in fact you are disadvantaging uh, uh, some men who are, you know, going to lose out in a meritable contest, great, because may the best person prevail. But often what happens is you get um, alpha, more alpha-inclined gentlemen putting themselves forward, uh, whereas actually very talented, perhaps introverted men, maybe taking a back seat, and you may therefore get some distortion there in the talent market. So by only going, for example, on one variable, you may, sure, hit a gender target, but unfortunately, rather than improving the quality of all folks, including men, you may be getting those guys who shout loudest uh, staying on board rather than necessarily those who are best qualified. And so we need to be a bit more nuanced and subtle in how we go about this rather than just pursuing a, a, a goal regardless. You cite movements in television and film as an interesting example of diversity working for leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're good examples to show where we can look at, for example, TV and film with on-screen diversity having changed very quickly, um, very noticeably. So if you look at the movements, you know, Oscar's so white and the focus on, um, you know, particularly post Harvey Weinstein and post, you know, George Floyd, um, the, the, the emphasis actually on representation, um, whilst there's still a long way to go, I think a lot of Western media certainly have very quickly and effectively increased the representation of diversity in front of the camera. 
And we can see that in commercial advertising as well as Hollywood blockbusters and so forth. Um, what's been a little like it is behind the camera, right? Which takes a little longer and is a bit more nuanced and it's got a lot more, more, more challenges on it. But I think, yeah, if we want to point to an area where clearly diversity's had an impact relatively quickly, we can look to, to the mass media and how actually there has been increased representation of different people that weren't before. And people have noticed that and, and definitely appreciated that. After this podcast, learn more about this and other insightful topics by going to nokia.com slash thought leadership. There you'll find additional information linked to today's podcast. In your book, uh, The Key to Inclusion, A Practical Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Belonging for You, Your Team, and Your Organization, you write about the importance of being more inclusive as an individual by building your cultural intelligence. How do you define cultural intelligence? Now, I think, I think that's important. Um, if we think of emotional intelligence, which people are very familiar with, and you know, Colvin's book and so forth, um, as being, I guess, the other part of the brain to the pure rational rational decision maker. Um, cultural intelligence is kind of building on that. So we, we now realize we live in a global, interconnected, technologically digital world. Um, no person is a bubble. Um, and we've looked to be, in some ways, culturally competent. So, you know, various cultural norms or uh, various language skills or, you know, various differences in, in meeting etiquette or so forth. And we're becoming competent in that. But but why we want to move from cultural competence to cultural intelligence is that, again, we don't kind of frame this as a, a cost of business, right? You've just got to be competent and I've got to learn how to interact with the Canadian and you've got to learn how to interact with the Brit. It's actually, what can I gain or what can we gain from a Brit and Canadian interacting? What can we gain through interacting with people who are very different from us? And actually... It again goes to those things we've touched on in the business case for diversity of cultural insights, um, being close to the market, close to the consumer, um, covering blind spots, um, thinking of new innovative ways of doing things or new practices or, you know, scaling a particular thing that's worked in one job or feed to a global audience. So it's really going beyond doing what you have to do, for example, as a expat, uh, into doing what you might want to do to create value where it didn't exist before. Um, in that sense, seeing someone who's different from you, not as a, uh, a piece of work, but actually as an opportunity to, to create something new and add value to, to all parties concerned. So then what are some of the tools required to build an organization and a leadership team that's diverse and inclusive? If we just stick on the, the culture intelligence piece, there are examples of multinationals who generally follow an expat model, you know, and export Americans or Japanese to geographies to, to run uh, localized PLs. Um, but increasingly we've seen um, actually sourcing of local talent being a more successful way to you know penetrate the local market. So I think Hitachi and Panasonic were two of the lead um, Japanese multinationals to recruit local folks to clean India and, and, and parts of Asia and actually steal a march on their competitors through being close to the market in terms of talent attraction and retention, but also you know supply chains and, and customer bases and so forth. So that's one example of go local, right? Um, but other examples, I think, have to look at the people um, cycle in its entirety from recruitment, motion to attention. And if we start up recruitment, you know, where are you recruiting? Um, and that's an obvious starting place, right? You know, where, what pulls you fishing in? 
whether it's the, the graduate milk round, whether it's, you know, uh, different pools that you might not have thought of before. Um, one really interesting um, organization I've come across recently is about um, attracting those who've retired already, so the over 55s, and encourage them back into the labor market, which again is perhaps something that some recruiters overlook. Then there's promotion and how we can get um, a much more debiased, objective means of promoting people um, in organizations, and we can delve into that if you like. And then there's retention, right? Why do people want to stay? And um, conducting stay interviews rather than exit interviews, but making sure you're particularly focused on diverse talent, uh, that it stays and feels included and has a sense of belonging. And so, you know, we can break it down into simple buckets on the people journey to try and make sure we are building uh, a sustainable pipeline for diversity inclusion in our, in our organizations. We mentioned television. Your latest book focuses not just on the future of television, but the future of technology, mm. uh, the future of banking. Is achieving diversity and inclusion different depending on the industry? Yeah, I think that's a great point. So there's some things which I think are universal norms, right? So regardless of industry. So generally speaking, if you believe in cognitive diversity, that's probably something which applies across sectors. And similarly, if we look at the concepts of bias or in-groups and out-groups or system one and system two thinking, these are things which are not particular to any one sector, right? And therefore, it'd be good practice to adopt these practices wherever you're working. But to your point, there are clearly differences within sectors which are dependent on what, what are the issues and what are they trying to do. So within TV and film, as we discussed, the, the main thing there is, is output and, and cultural product. Um, and that's been very much focused on, you know, representation on screen, right? Uh, the bigger challenge there, as we've discussed, is, is off screen. In technology, um, perhaps the goal there is, is accuracy of search results or accuracy of algorithm design. And therefore, it's much more around the cognitive diversity in the engineering teams and the coders, right, to, to, to get those results correct and avoid blind spots. In financial services, I think the goal there, in one sense, from a regulatory perspective, is to minimise risk. So how can we actually think of diversity inclusion as being a bit more of a safe blanket to minimise excess and risk-taking amongst certain personality types, um, at least to increase the checks and balances on those personality types. Um, whereas from a from a non-regulated perspective, it's how can we get the latest idea and 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 maximise return. So I think you're right. Depending on whether it's returns in FS or innovation in tech or representation in TV and film, there will be those nuances. So Stephen, from our time together today, if there was one takeaway you'd want the listener to have from this conversation, what would it be? I think the takeaway would be reframe diversity inclusion and challenge yourselves to what this is because whether you think you're brilliant at it and you practice inclusion every day as you said none of this is brilliant enough um whether you think actually sort of three hugging rubbish rethink again it is a cognitive diversity and and how you make decisions everybody can improve their performance everybody can do better work and it doesn't cost anything you know it, it really doesn't cost anything to examine your own blind spots to examine your own inputs to your own decisions and so forth. And at minimum, if you're a skeptic, um, diversity inclusion can de-risk the decisions that you are accountable for, which is good news. A more positive spin would be actually that it can really kind of source new ideas and, uh, and new perspectives, which can create new things and you know enrich the lives of us all. Um, so wherever you are on that spectrum, from being a skeptic to an advocate, 
uh, I hope all of us can be humble enough to see that it, it can definitely help us. And a bit of reframing and challenging ourselves is, is not a bad thing. Building a future that's productive, sustainable and inclusive in a world that acts together. Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash thought leadership.